Well, I want to minister for a little while this morning through a message I'm calling God has graciously given. One of the things I think about is that I don't always walk in perfect circumstances. But I am mindful that I have a perfect father. I have a perfect grace. I have a perfect salvation. I have a finished work that's working on the inside of me. And so when my circumstances are less than desirable, I don't try to concentrate on them. I look beyond my circumstances and I look to a faithful father. And there is a source of encouragement, a source of energy in there that helps me to not just get through, but get joyfully through the situations that we're dealing with. If we are honest, uh, the truth of the matter is we all deal with a great number of hardships. Uh, people face them, and many of those hardships come at the hands of their own actions. Many of those hardships come from the spark of their own tongue. And then, on the other hand, people suffer. People suffer from the consequences of the decisions that are made by other people, and they directly or indirectly affect our lives. For example, a drunk driver takes the life of an innocent man or an innocent woman or a child. That family will suffer forever. Nothing they did wrong, they were totally innocent, but yet directly or indirectly, we walk through situations in life. And unfortunately, there are decisions that are made that honestly have no rewind button. Sometimes I look for a rewind button. We can reboot almost everything today. We can reset it. We can rewind it. But there are situations that happen that there is no rewind button to them. But regardless of who is responsible for the chaos in our lives, what we do find at work on our behalf is a loving and gracious father. A father that knows how to bring beauty from ashes. A father that knows how to restore the years the locust, the canker worm, the pommel worm, the caterpillar have eaten. Papa God has always been a gracious giver. He doesn't give because we are good. He doesn't give because we deserve anything. He doesn't give because of some reward system. He doesn't give because he even pities us. He gives because he is good. He is a good, good father, and he is a good, good giver. His giving is not based upon our faithfulness. His giving is based upon his faithfulness. God has graciously given us the darling of heaven. We sang about him this morning. He's given us the darling of heaven, and he's given the darling of heaven to the whole world. God has graciously given His Son for all humanity. The Father has prepared a table before us and we are seated in perfect peace, listen to me carefully, even in the presence of reckless and irresponsible enemies. You say, how can I have peace in the presence of enemies? How can I have peace where conflict abounds? Those are two great questions. How do I find peace in the middle of conflict in my life? Well, let's ask an expert, a man that knew firsthand about conflict, a man that knew firsthand about persecution. That is the Apostle Paul. Philippians chapter 4, verse 7 
and 8, we find these words. He says, and the peace of God, which transcends all understanding. Now listen, that's a big word. We don't use the word transcend too often, but transcend means to go above, to go beyond anything that we could think or imagine. And he relates that to peace. He said, now the peace that transcends all understanding, anything that you could possibly conjure up. He said, there's a peace that transcends all understanding. And he said, it will guard your heart and minds in Christ Jesus. Now watch what he says. He says, finally, brothers and sisters, whatever is true, whatever is noble, whatever is right, whatever is pure, whatever is lovely, whatever is admirable, if anything is excellent or praiseworthy, look what he says, think about such things. Did you notice that the Apostle Paul took the peace that transcends all understanding and he shackled it with virtue meditation? He said, if you want this peace to come into your heart, if you want this peace to be at work in your life, he says, you have got to learn to meditate on that which is true, that which is noble, that which is lovely, that which is pure, that which is admirable. He says, you've got to concentrate on these things. In other words, the Apostle Paul was saying that peace will continually be awakened in your heart as you meditate upon the truth that God has graciously given us everything that pertains to life and godliness. He's already made a deposit on the inside. Peace is the gift from God that blossoms. See, it's like a flower. A flower can be pretty, but it's much more beautiful once it opens. Peace is inside like that bulb. And as we meditate upon the virtues of God, it's like that flower just begins to open and peace begins to proliferate into our hearts and into our life and into our circumstances as we meditate upon his goodness. We don't have to live in a perfect world. We don't have to work at a perfect job. We don't have to have a perfect family. We don't have to work and walk in perfect health. And friends, we don't have to live within perfect circumstances in order to have perfect peace. See, that's just a trick of the enemy that says when everything is right, when everything is perfect, then I will act perfect, I will act right. Trickery. Look at what the prophet Isaiah said in chapter 26 in verse 3. He says, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace, whose mind is stayed on thee, because he trusteth in thee. Notice what he says here. He said, Thou wilt keep him in perfect peace. Now, when we look at the words perfect and peace, we understand those are two different English words but not in the Hebrew. In the Hebrew, it literally reads, thou wilt keep him in shalom, shalom. It literally is saying, thou wilt keep him in peace, peace, whose mind is stayed on him because we trust in him. I'm telling you, the next time you're facing circumstances that seem insurmountable, concentrate on his virtues, that he's faithful, that he's true, that he's gracious, his grace flows down and covers me. As we just sang, his grace is sufficient. So let me ask you a question. Where do we find such peace? Where do we find this perfect peace, this peace, peace, this shalom, shalom? Well, the short answer is Jesus. <laughs> the long answer is Jesus. And the only answer is, <laughs> come on, it's Jesus. Peace can only be found in Jesus. And that's what Jesus was getting at in John chapter 14 and verse 27 when he said these words. He said, peace, 
I leave with you. My peace I give unto you, not as the world giveth give I unto you. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. Now, let me ask you a question. Why would Jesus have to add the words, let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid? I'll tell you why. Because he knows that we are going to face chaotic circumstances that have a way of making our peace ebb and flow, come and go. The opposite of peace is not war. The opposite of peace is fear. Where there is no fear, there is no war. I want you to really consider what Jesus is saying there in John chapter 14, verse 27, when he said, peace I leave with you. What Jesus is saying is saying, I'm going to make a single deposit on the inside of you. One deposit. You're going to have all the peace. <laughs> I don't just keep sending peace. I put everything inside of you at one time. It's the same thing with salvation. It's the same thing with his love. He deposited it all in one gift to us. And as we awaken to the truth that peace is on the inside of me, Jesus said, my peace I leave with you. My peace I give unto you. And this is a gift like nobody gives you because other gifts that people give us deteriorate. We get rid of them sometimes over time. They're fragile. They're, they break at times. But Jesus said, not here. There's not. There is an epidemic of needless wars and persecutions that are coursing its way across this great land and across this world. And those needless wars and persecutions are driven, listen to me, by winds and waves of fear. That's what drives needless wars and persecution. Fear comes to disrupt our peace and to negate or somehow marginalize God's promises. In other words, God makes a promise to you and you lock onto that promise. You hold onto that promise. And then all of a sudden, the winds and the waves, the fear, all these issues of life begin to come. And what they do is they've come so that they can reach out and they can take away the promises that God has made you, or they can marginalize those promises. In other words, they can put them out of your line of sight. They're off in a peripheral way. Not true. God's promises are yes and amen, just like he said. Disunity among social and political parties is disheartening. Godless ideologies and corruption are escalating in height, and they are proliferating in width. Friends, let me tell you something. I don't believe in the years that I've been alive that I have seen a time when our country or our world has been more divided. I don't think I've ever seen a time like this. But in the midst of all this fighting, in the midst of all this quarreling, a plume of fear and pain and frustration, a plume of guilt and shame and condemnation is rising from the hearts of the believer and the unbeliever. And it shouldn't be so. But in spite of the presence of these enemies, you say, what enemies? Wars and persecutions. Disunity. Enemies of the cross. Godless ideologies. Enemies. Fighting and quarreling. Enemies. Fear, pain, frustration, guilt, shame, condemnation. Enemies. And in spite of those, in spite of the presence of those enemies, the Father has prepared a table for us. 
And he has set us at that table like royalty. I want you to see yourself that way. You are a royal son or daughter of the king. And he has set you at the table as royalty. At his table, we are strengthened. At his table, listen, we are empowered. At his table, we are encouraged. At his table, we are equipped. At his table, we are comforted by the pervasive truths and graces that flow freely from the Father's heart, flow freely from the God that has graciously given us his promises through his word and through his son, Jesus Christ. David said these words in Psalm 23, verses 5 and 6. He said, Thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. Thou anointest my head with oil. My cup runneth over. He said, Surely goodness and mercy shall follow me all the days of my life, and I will dwell in the house of the Lord forever. Did David say that? He did. Have you ever noticed that immediately following a homegoing celebration, I'm talking about a funeral, have you ever noticed that immediately following one of those ceremonies, we find a prepared meal waiting for us almost every single time? You see, in the presence of the enemy we call death, we still desire the table. There's something about coming to the table. David said, Yea, though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, he said, I will fear no evil, for thou art with me. Thy rod and thy staff, they comfort me. His very next words, thou preparest a table before me in the presence of my enemies. The table is always sweetest after the valley. Pause and think about that. The table is always sweetest after the valley. David walked through the valley. He sat him at the table. The table always follows the valley. A prepared table without a prepared heart is like taking a pair of socks and putting both socks on the same foot. <laughs> now let me ask you a question. Are you technically still wearing a pair of socks? Yes, you are. You're still wearing a pair of socks. But how many of you realize that that is a comically odd arrangement? It's an odd arrangement, isn't it? I'll tell you why I know it's odd, because I'm 59 years old and I've never left home one time wearing two socks on one foot and no sock on the other, not inadvertently or on purpose. It's an odd arrangement. Wearing the new covenant over the top of the old covenant is like wearing two socks on one foot and no sock on the other foot. You have set both feet up for failure. One foot will be too hot, the other one will be too cold. One will be overprotected, the other one will be underprotected. Friends, the new covenant meal was not prepared over the top of the old covenant meal, and neither is the new heart conjoined with the old heart. The old heart has been removed. The old nature has been taken away. The old self was crucified with Christ and raised in resurrection life and power. The table has been wiped clean. How? Because another person's actions, we know who that person is, Jesus, because another person's actions affected our outcome directly, 
for an eternity. I'm talking about the one that prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. I'm talking about the one that anoints our head with oil. I'm talking about the one who makes our cup overflow. I'm talking about the one who declared that you're going to dwell in the house of the Lord forever and surely goodness and mercy are going to follow you all the days of your life. Friends, the Father only sees us through the lens of that which is true, that which is noble, that which is right, that which is pure, that which is lovely, and that which is admirable. He does. That's the only way he sees us. Leaving the old heart inside of a new creation in Christ would be as negligent as a doctor leaving surgical tools inside the body after an operation. Now, the reason I say that is because my mother's sister back in the 1970s, she had a hernia surgery. They closed her up. She came back and said, something doesn't feel right. No, no, everything's right. No, something doesn't feel right. Something feels like it's poking me. No, everything's right. No, do an x-ray. And they did an x-ray. And they found an eight-inch pair of forceps that they had closed up on the inside of her. And then she had to go back and have another surgery to have it removed. And friends, I found out that this was a common problem until they started counting all the instruments today. It doesn't happen so much because they have to count every single piece of thread, every needle, every thimble, whatever you're using, they have to count it before and afterwards. But can you imagine leaving the old heart on the inside of us while the new heart's coming in with it? No, it didn't happen that way. And people think that's what I've got. I've got my old heart still along with the new heart. No, friends, you don't have an old heart anymore. See, even Ezekiel the prophet, he could look ahead. He didn't even know what he was saying when he said these words in chapter 36, verse 26. He said, and I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. Look at what he says. I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you. And I look at what he says. I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. I don't know if he understood what he was saying. They wrote, the Bible says, as the Spirit gave utterance. Not realizing how much revelation was in this. But he said, I'm going to take out your old heart. Now the heart's talking about the nature. It's not talking about this beating organ here. It's talking about the nature of man. I'm going to remove your old nature. The prophet Isaiah's prophecy perfectly dovetails with David's Psalm 23. Not only does the father prepare the table for his children, but he prepares his children for the table by giving them a new heart. You see, he has clothed us with righteousness, new heart, new spirit, new nature. He has shot our feet with the preparation of the gospel of peace so that I can sit down in peace. Really? At the table with my enemy? Yes, your feet have been shod with the gospel of peace. You've got a new heart. God has removed the old heart, and God has graciously given us a new heart. Please note that the table that was prepared for David was prepared for him in the presence of his enemies so that his enemies could see that David had a good, good father. I don't know what they thought. Friends, enemies are bigger than devils. Pain is an enemy. 
Guilt is an enemy. Shame is an enemy. Fear is an enemy. And I'm telling you, God has prepared us in the presence of those things. In other words, he said, listen, these things will not necessarily go away, but I'm telling you, I've prepared you to be able to handle yourself when you find yourself facing these issues of life. Listen, you may not know it by me, but I just came through a year that was one of the toughest years of my life, but I've made decisions. I've made decisions that my father has prepared a table before me in the presence of my enemy. He's prepared my heart to be able to look beyond my own personal issues and they came from all directions, friends, north, south, east, and west. And from the inside out, they came from all directions. But I'm still standing. I'm still standing in the presence of my Father. I'm seated with Christ. When a soldier is in the presence of his enemies, did you know he generally won't eat? And if he eats, it's only for strength. It is never for pleasure. And then he may grab a hasty snack. He may grab a real quick meal. But then he returns to his posture of fighting. That's what a soldier does. Please make note of the words that David said. He said, thou preparest a table before me. In Christ, nothing is rushed. In Christ, nothing is hurried. In Christ, there is no confusion. In Christ. There is no disturbance. The enemy lurks in the shadows, and yet God prepares a table so that both son and daughter can sit down and eat in shalom, shalom. He can sit down and eat in peace, peace. He can sit down and eat in perfect peace. It's important for us to remember that our true enemies are not people. Under the old covenant, that's all the enemies were. They were always people. They were fighting against. Not even knowing that Satan was behind it even back then. But I'm telling you, our enemies are not people. Because if you believe that, well then you're going to pick and choose the ones you want to love. Love is a choice. Love is a decision that comes out of a new heart. And you know what? I'm telling you, it would just bring such relief because some people are so hard to love. You know that, don't you? Come on with me. Some people are so hard to love. They're hard to even like. They are. They're just hard to even like. You see them coming in a grocery store and you just start walking the other way. You know, I've done that a time or two myself. I'm like, oh, no. Oh, man. I mean, either they talk too long and you got to go or, you, you know, you see, you know, you got different issues, right? Friends, enemies are not people. People we must love. Love is a far greater weapon than man-made weapons. It's a far greater weapon than any of the weapons that the enemy has. Why? Why? I'll tell you why. Because love never fails to detonate. And it doesn't do the damage like bombs and guns and grenades and whatever. Weapons of mass destruction. Love detonates, yes, but it always makes things better. Love never fails. Always, always wins. Our struggle is not with people. It's with the spiritual forces of evil. Now we see that truth in Ephesians chapter 6 and verse 12. Look at what the word says. It says, for our struggle is not against flesh and blood, but against the rulers, against the authorities. You see what he said? I just told you. It's not against people. Flesh, blood. No, it's against rulers. 
against the authorities, against the powers of this dark world, and against the spiritual forces of evil in heavenly realms. We have to quit fighting and quarreling with flesh and blood. We have to quit having discussions and conversations with our own flesh and blood, our own emotions and feelings. We've got to quit allowing fear and pain and frustration, guilt, shame, and condemnation to confer with us at the table. That means to have a discussion with us because they've got big blabbermouths on them. Oh, they love to talk, don't they? Pain loves to talk to you. Fear loves to talk to you. Guilt loves to talk to you. Shame will put its finger in your face and talk to you. You've got to quit talking with these things, having discussions with these things. You say, Mark, that's easier said than done. How is it that I refrain? How do I refrain from having those conversations? Well, I want to show you how the Apostle Paul handled flesh, whether it was his or somebody else's, in times when he wanted to talk to that flesh. Galatians chapter 1, verses 15 and 16. It says this, But when it pleased God, who separated me from my mother's womb, and called me by his grace. I love that. Oh, I don't want to rush that. Please, please let that fall to the sticky side of your heart this morning. He said he called me by his grace. And he was pleased to reveal his son in me that I might preach him among the heathen. Look what he says immediately. Look at those words. I conferred not with flesh and blood. I got a revelation from God. I got a revelation from Jesus Christ. And I didn't turn to flesh and blood and say, is this right? No, I hear his voice. I know his voice. Because I'm going to get a different opinion from flesh and blood. And that opinion I'm going to get from flesh and blood is probably not going to line up with the word that daddy just gave me. And it's going to cause a war and disruption and confusion. It's going to rob me of peace, peace, shalom, shalom. Because now I'm going to have mixture floating around in my heart. Daddy said one thing. That preacher said another thing. You said another thing. My flesh says another thing. Friends, that's the war we're in sometimes. This is why it's so important to meditate upon Daddy's word, to meditate upon this gospel of grace. Because it will reshape the way you look at your situations. It will reshape the way you respond to your situations. I don't care how negative those situations are. I don't think there's a thing you could tell me about me personally. Now, you mess with my kids, you mess with my wife, that's a different story. I don't think there's a thing that you could tell me, a doctor could tell me, that would disrupt my peace. I honestly believe that right now. I honestly believe that. I finally believe I've come to the point where I feel like the Apostle Paul that says, you know, I can't figure it out. Do I want to go to heaven today or do I just want to stay here and just keep on working and serving? It doesn't matter. I win either way. I can sit at this table or I can sit at that table, but in the end, we're all going to sit at a table at the marriage supper of the Lamb. It doesn't matter to me. It's not going to yank me out of my peace, the, pe the perfect peace that I'm sensing and feeling. When we sin, come on, let's be real now. Let's just be honest, okay? When we sin, flesh and blood will schedule a go-to meeting with you. It will put you on a calendar, friends. At that meeting, flesh and blood will try to tell us that we have two hearts. You must have two hearts. Flesh and blood will try to convince us that we need another surgery. 
Perhaps there were some surgical tools that were left behind. Maybe a fragment of that old heart was left behind. That's why you're doing what you're doing. After all, look at what you've been thinking. <laughs> look at what you've done. No, friends, believers have one heart. Daddy did the surgery perfectly. The Bible says by one sacrifice, Jesus has made perfect forever those who are made holy. One heart, one surgery, one sacrifice. Beautiful, isn't it? So when the Apostle Paul uses the language when he says, I conferred not with flesh and blood, he is basically saying, I didn't check with another human being, and for that matter, I didn't check with my own emotions, my own feelings, my own logic, my own reasoning. Checking with flesh and blood often leads to fighting and quarreling. It does. The Apostle James asks a couple of thought-provoking questions along that line. This is what he says in James chapter 4, verses 1 through 3. He says, What causes fights and quarrels among you? Then like a GPS with pinpoint accuracy, he just takes us right to the origin of fighting and quarreling. He answers the question that he asks. He said, Don't they come from your desires, that battle within you? You desire, but you do not have, so you kill. You covet, but you cannot get what you want, so you quarrel and fight. You do not have because you do not ask Daddy. You do not ask God. When you ask, you do not receive because you ask with wrong motives that you may spend what you get on your pleasures. The Apostle James is simply telling us that fights and quarrels begin on the inside of a man. He says, don't they come from your desires that battle within you? Therefore, in order to change the actions of a man, in order to change the tongue of a man, in order to change the attitude of a man and the motivations of a man, a change must first take place inside the man. Friends, that's what the gospel of grace is designed to do. I'm talking about the same gospel and the same grace that God has graciously given us. Now, the Apostle James just drew a painful picture of the battle that rages within man's soul. And whether those images disturbed you or not, the truth of the matter is that every one of us face our own fights, our own quarrels, our own fear, our own pain and frustration. Like David, we all occasionally face a Goliath of guilt, shame, and condemnation. We all face needless wars and persecutions. Now the tendency, here it is, is for us to believe that we will be happy once we are on the right side of all these enemies. We will be happy once the enemy has folded his napkin at the table for the last time. But I've come by today to remind us that we can find perfect peace we can find even happiness in the midst of an environment of godless chatter, escalating confusion, and needless wars and persecutions. Look at these words that David penned in Psalm chapter 27, verses 1 through 3. He said, The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. 
Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then I will be confident. When I listen to the spirit that David wrote that psalm in, I am thoroughly convinced that David had a deep revelation of the character of God, that David had a deep revelation of the providential care and the love and the grace of God. He believed what he wrote and he wrote what he believed. He lived what he penned and he penned what he lived. David understood covenant and David understood the heart of his covenant keeping God. Let's look at those scriptures a little closer up. He says, the Lord is my light. When David used the word Lord, behind that word in the Hebrew is the word Yehovah, Jehovah, we say. I want you to make note that the word Lord is in all capital letters. And every time you see the word Lord written in all capital letters, it literally refers to the covenant-keeping God. So David was aware of all the issues of life that he had, but David was able to look beyond those issues of life. David was able to look to his covenant-keeping God, and he said, Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God, he said, he is my light. Friends, light is greater and bigger than just illumination. When David said, he is my light, yes, he was saying, he is my illumination. Yes, he's my way out of darkness. But that word light means happiness also. So when David said, Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God is my illumination. He was literally saying, Jehovah, the covenant-keeping God is my source of happiness. Have you ever noticed that when a person is happy, everybody knows it? Oh, you can't hide happiness. You wear it on your face. You can tell when people are happy. Now, you can't always tell when they're angry. You can't always tell when they're mad. But I'm telling you, you cannot hide happiness. Your face lights up, and that's why he said, the Lord is my light. He is my happiness. He is my illumination. Friends, I'm not happy about all of this fighting and quarreling, and I'm not happy about all the fear and pain and frustrations that we deal with, but David was saying, my happiness comes from staring at the virtues of my God, not my issues of life. Friends, listen to me. If you want to walk in perfect peace, a peace that has no fear, then you have to stare at his truth. You have to stare at his nobility. You have to stare at his righteousness. You have to stare at his purity and his loveliness and his acceptance. He says, the Lord is my light and my salvation. Then he asks that question, whom shall I fear? When he says, the Lord is my light and my salvation, that word salvation literally means he is my liberty. He is my freedom. David was saying, the Lord is my light, but he is also my liberty and he is my freedom. He said, the Lord is the stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advanced against me to devour me, he said, it is my enemy and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Why? Perfect peace is at work in my life. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. In the book of Acts, we find a narrative that incorporates almost everything I've said up to this point in time. It incorporates needless wars and persecutions. It incorporates godless ideologies and chaos, hardships brought upon men because of the actions of others, fear, pain, and frustration weighing men down like anchors. 
the valley of shadow death lurking within the waves and winds of fear we find an enemy that brings disillusion and darkness and that enemy has the audacity to sit down with us on the vessel sit down with us on the ship you see the apostle paul is on a cargo ship and between crew and passengers there are 276 men on this ship how do i know that because the bible tells us that Paul has been accompanied on this ship by his companion Luke, the physician, the one who is writing the book of Acts and the one who is writing this narrative. The Apostle Paul is just one of many prisoners. He has done nothing wrong. He is being persecuted and he will suffer on this journey because of the decisions that were made by other people, like I said in the beginning. His only charge, friends, is that he wouldn't quit preaching the gospel of grace. I'm talking about the gospel that God has graciously given to us through Jesus who shed blood on the cross. We find that story beginning in Acts chapter 27 and verse 9. The Bible says much time had been lost in sailing had already become dangerous because by now it was after the day of atonement. So Paul warned them. I want to stop right here for just a second. Now Paul is on a ship and there are people that are in charge of this ship that know a lot more about Salem than Paul does. So who is Paul to warn these men, the captain of the ship, the pilot of the ship? Who is the apostle Paul to warn these men? Well, see, the apostle Paul is seeing in the spirit realm. These guys are only seeing in the natural. He's seeing by the spirit. So the Bible says, so Paul warned them and he said, men, I can see that our voyage is going to be disastrous and bring great loss to the ship and cargo and to our own lives also. But, but the centurion, instead of listening to what Paul said, followed the advice of the pilot and the owner of the ship. Since the harbor was unsuitable to winter in, look what it says, the majority decided. Friends, let me stop here for just a second. I want you to know something. The majority without the heart of God is just a number. That's all it is. That's all it is. It says the majority decided that we should sail on, hoping to reach Phoenix in winter there. This was a harbor in Crete facing both southwest and northwest. Now watch these words. When a gentle south wind began to blow, all we're talking about is natural elements. That's it. But when a gentle south wind began to blow, they saw their opportunity. So they weighed anchored and sailed along the shore of Crete. Before very long, a hurricane force wind called the Northeaster. Friends, in the Greek, the word in the Greek is Eurachlodon. I know that sounds like some prehistoric dinosaur, but that's what it's called in the Greek. It's called a Eurachlodon. The Bible says, a wind of hurricane force called the Northeaster swept down from the island. The ship was caught by the storm and could not head into the wind, so we gave way to it and were driven along. As we passed to the lee of a small island called Cauda, we were hardly able to make the lifeboat secure, so the men hoisted it aboard. They passed ropes under the ship itself to hold it together. Because they were afraid they would run aground on the sandbars of Sirtis, they lowered the sea anchor and let the ship be driven along. We took such a violent battering from the storm that the next day they began to throw the cargo overboard. On the third day, they threw the ship's tackle overboard with their own hands. Now listen at these next words. Listen to me carefully. It says, when neither sun nor stars 
appeared for many days. Friends, I'm telling you, there are going to be times in our lives, every single one of our lives, there's going to be times when the sun doesn't seem like it wants to shine its happy face. There's going to be times when I'm telling you, there's not a twinkle in the sky. There's not a twinkle in your eye. But the Bible says, when neither sun nor stars appeared for many days, and the storm continued raging i'm talking about storms that are bigger than winds and waves i'm talking about the storm that knocks on your door maybe you've been dealing with a health problem for a long time you've not seen the sun you've not seen the stars shining in your body for a long time but i'm telling you hold on to god's word hold on to god's promises maybe some of you have been dealing with issues in finances for a long time maybe some of you have had the storms raging in relationships. I'm talking about in your families. I'm talking about in your friendships. The Bible says, when neither sun or stars appeared for many days and the storm continued raging. Now look what Luke wrote. He said, we finally gave up all hope of being saved. We, meaning he and Paul and everybody on the ship. And he says, after they had gone a long time without food, oh, here it goes, friends. Paul, that the apostle Paul, stood up before them and said, men, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Now, Paul, come on, Paul. Why do you got to rub it in their face? Well, I don't know. He just wanted to get the last word in. But he said, you should have taken my advice not to sail from Crete. Then you would have been spared yourselves this damage and loss. Look at what he says, though. He says, but now, he said, I urge you to keep up your courage because not one of you will be lost. Only the ship will be destroyed. Friends, listen to me carefully. That's all we are. We're a vessel. Sometimes the ship is destroyed. Sometimes it goes down to the bottom. But I want you to know something. Look at the words. He said, not one of you will be lost. In Christ, there is nothing lost. And this is why he had the confidence. He said, last night, an angel of the God to whom I belong and to whom I serve stood beside me and said, do not be afraid, Paul. In other words, he was saying, peace, peace, perfect peace, shalom, shalom. He said, do not be afraid, Paul. He said, you must stand trial before Caesar. Look at these words. He said, and God has graciously given you. Friends, that's the inspiration for this message. He said, God has graciously given you the lives of all who sail with you. So keep up your courage, men, for I have faith in God that it will happen just as he told me. Nevertheless, we must run aground on some island. Paul was saying, listen, he was saying, you may be the ones that were reckless. You may be the ones that were irresponsible. You may be the ones that are answerable for the hardships that we're all facing, but I know a loving and gracious Father. I want to remind you that he gave the darling of heaven for all humanity. We sang about the song today. We sang those songs, the darling of heaven crucified. I want you to know something. He gave the darling of heaven for the pilot of the ship. He gave the darling of heaven for the centurion on this ship. He gave the darling of heaven for every single prisoner on this ship. Had he not been loving and gracious, then friends, there would have been 276 burials at sea. But my father knows how to bring beauty from ashes. My father has the ability to restore the years the locusts have eaten. Why? Because he is faithful. 
He is good. Friends, he has prepared a table before us in the presence of our enemies. He prepared a table before Paul, even in the presence of his enemies, and all were able to eat from the table. Why? Because he is a good, good father, because he is faithful, and because he loves the whole world. God gave us an example of a supernaturally prepared heart in an unexpected way, not only through men like the Apostle Paul and the Psalmist David, but through a horse. That horse was named Secretariat. In 1973, Secretariat did something that very few horses have done. Secretariat won the Triple Crown. That means he won the Kentucky Derby, he won the Preakness Stakes, and then he won the Belmont Stakes all within just a matter of weeks of each other. When Secretariat won the Belmont Stakes, it was said about him that he had ran the greatest race ever run. You want to know why? Listen, he won by a 31-length victory, which is unheard of in a horse race. Have you ever heard the term photo finish? Well, friends, that comes from horse racing because they cross the line so close together that they have to stop the film. They have to stop the recording and inch by inch move it forward. And there's a, an imaginary line that's drawn across the finish line so they can see who's Horse's nose crosses first. He won by a 31 horse length. This feat had never been done before and it has never been done since. And then after Secretariat's death in 1989, there was an autopsy that was performed on that horse and the mystery. Oh, friend, the great mystery of that great champion was revealed. You see, the veterinarians discovered that Secretariat had a heart that was two and a half times larger than the average horse's heart. His heart weighed an astonishing 22 pounds. Friends, the average horse's heart weighs eight and a half pounds. He was a blood-pumping machine. It has been said that Secretariat ran the greatest race ever because he had a supernaturally prepared heart. Friends, the wonderful truths that we take home from the message today are these. The mystery has been revealed. We have a big heart because we have daddy's heart. The old heart of stone has been removed and he has given us a new heart and a new spirit. His heart is larger than the hardships and the persecutions we face. His heart is good and faithful. His heart writes new beginnings for our tragic endings. His heart brings beauty out of ashes and restores the years the locust, the cankerworm, the pommel worm, and the caterpillar have eaten. In the midst of the raging storms of life, during those times when we haven't seen the sun or the stars for many days, Daddy's heart communicates a profound truth, and that is peace, peace, perfect peace. Shalom, shalom. Let not your heart be troubled, neither let it be afraid. I have supernaturally prepared your heart, and I have supernaturally prepared the table. Hear the reassuring words of the Lord. I'm talking about the covenant-keeping God, Lord, when he says, I am your light. I'm your way out of darkness. I'm your light. I'm your happiness and your salvation. 
I am your freedom. I am your way out of darkness as I illuminate your heart with happiness and liberty. The Lord is a stronghold of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? When the wicked advance against me to devour me, it is my enemies and my foes who will stumble and fall. Though an army besiege me, my heart will not fear. Though war break out against me, even then will I be confident. Why? Ask that question. Why? Friends, because I am meditating on that which is true. I am meditating on that which is noble. I am meditating on that which is right. I am meditating upon that which is lovely, that which is pure, that which is admirable. Friends, I am meditating upon Jesus, the darling of heaven, the one that God has graciously given to all humanity in Jesus' name. Amen. Well, Daddy, I have absolutely preached myself happy. As I look into your word and I see the liberty that shines from your word. And I understand that there are going to be times in life that we don't seem like we see the natural sun or the stars for many days. I understand that there's going to be challenges in our lives. And whether we brought them on ourselves or they were brought on by someone else, that is not the question. The way out of that is to look beyond our issues of life and to put ourselves in remembrance of a covenant keeping God. I'm talking about Jehovah. I'm talking about the Lord. I'm talking about a covenant keeping God who keeps his covenant with all humanity. Why? Because his covenant has been cut with his beloved son, his one and only begotten son. His covenant has been cut with the darling of heaven, Jesus Christ. And so father, we can encourage one another. We can urge one another to be encouraged because not one of you will ever be lost in Christ. In Christ, no one is lost. Yes, the ship goes down once in a while. Yes, the vessel goes down once in a while, but we are never lost in Christ. I want to thank you for that, Father. I want to thank you for this kind of grace that I see in your words, Daddy. I thank you, Father. I thank you that the table is even sweetest after the valley. In Jesus' name, amen.